This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Marina Yevshan, co-host of the Russian-Ukraine War Report podcast, and today is September the 25th, 2023. It's been 3,499 days since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea on January 27, 2014, and one year and 214 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. Today's podcast looks back at the events that happened yesterday. You can use our Russia-Ukraine war map to help you visualize the areas discussed today. You can find a link in the podcast's description. Let's start with the daily assessment. Our previous assessment that Russia would launch a punitive missile and drone strike targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure within the next two to four days was regrettably accurate. The Russian Ministry of Defense remains in a chaotic state, incapable of creating mission cohesion between penal units, mobics, conscripts, elite forces and proxy forces. At the direction of President Vladimir Putin, the Russian government is in the largest purge of dissident voices and perceived internal enemies since the Soviet era, including the leaders, mercenaries and employees of PMC Wagner, objective state media journalists and war bloggers, far-right nationalists who want the Kremlin to take more aggressive action in Ukraine, and human rights activists. There remains a lingering possibility of partisan violence within Russia after the killings of Yevgeny Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin. President Putin's stature, both inside and outside of Russia, remains in a weakened state. Russian Chief of Staff Valery Gerasimov and Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu are some of the best allies available for the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense due to their acceptance of systemic corruption, political infighting, waste of military resources and refusal to adapt to the realities within the theater of war. The sought response by Ukraine's allies after Russian aggression on Ukraine's border has further emboldened Moscow to take increasing risks, which could cause a significant international incident. The perceived slow progress of the ongoing Ukrainian offensive, questions about the capabilities of Ukrainian military commanders at the battalion and brigade level, and ongoing anti-corruption measures highlighting the problems within the Ukrainian government are unfairly straining Western support. Western partners are not meeting their promised military training, heavy equipment and ammunition delivery dates, and these continued delays are negatively impacting Ukraine's military capabilities. We maintain Ukraine holds the initiative theater-wide, and the number of combat-ineffective and combat-destroyed Russian units is growing, eroding Russian combat potential in numerous areas of operation. In our assessment, Russia will attempt to destroy Ukraine's energy infrastructure over the fall and winter. Finally, while the possibility of an intentional nuclear accident caused by Russian occupiers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains low, the threat should be taken seriously. <laughs> 
Today's action report starts in the Donbass. In Luhansk, Operational Command East spokesperson Ilya Vlash said Russian Storm Z penal troops were involved in a skirmish near Bilohorivka. The attack was unsuccessful. Moving to the northeast Donetsk region, Russian soldiers entrenched between Verkhnyokamyenske and Zolotarivka on the Luhansk-Donetsk administrative border appealed online for drones and electronic warfare equipment, stating that they are being haunted by Ukrainian drones with no way to respond. Northwest of Bakhmut, Russian forces attempted to advance in the direction of Bogdanivka, suffered losses and returned to their defensive positions. Russian forces, supported by the Russian Aerospace Forces VKS, continued counterattacks near Klishchivka without success. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported intense fighting on the western edge of Kurdyumivka. Russian troops tried to break through the defensive lines at the Siversky Donetsk Donbass Canal, with Ukrainian forces holding their positions. In southwestern Donetsk, it's become more active in the Avdivka area of operation, or AO. Russian sources reported that Ukrainian troops were on the offensive at the approach of the Krasnohorivka plateau near Vesele. Russian forces tried to advance from Krutabalka and Opetne in the direction of Avdivka without success. Marinka? Yes. Any change? No. Ukrainian forces continue to make significant tactical gains in Zaporizhia. This is a good time to open up the war map due to the dynamic situation in the Orihivayo. Fighting continued along the entire axis from west of Robotene, the outskirts of Novoprokopivka, along the Surovikin line following the 160-meter and 140-meter heights to Verbove and in the direction of Novofedorivka. Did you catch that? To Verbove. Not near. Videos showed Ukrainian armored vehicles operating in the western part of Verbove, confirming that Ukrainian forces have breached the second echelon of Russian defenses, created a gap and are advancing to the third echelon in the direction of Romanivske and Tarasivka. This confirms claims that started on September the 22nd by multiple Russian sources that Ukrainian troops supported by armor are in Verbove. I almost forgot. Our subscriber-only daily situation report links to many of the pictures, videos and resources I discuss in today's report. You can subscribe to our Patreon for as little as $5 a month, there's a link in the podcast description, and we offer a 7-day free trial. NASA fire information for resources management systems indicated significant fires in and around Verbove and near Pshenichne, where Russian defensive lines are located. Fighting continues west of Robotene, following the Russian trenches toward Kopani. Russian forces, supported by the VKS, tried to counterattack, but were unsuccessful. Multiple Russian sources are claiming regiments with the Russian 7th and 76th Airborne Assault VDV divisions are suffering heavy losses. Our assessment. Ukrainian forces have broken through Russian defenses, creating a breach that has developed into a gap. The recent tactical gains have led to operation success at Verbove, but there is still no breakthrough. A breakthrough would include at least the localized collapse of Russian defenses and a rapid advance by Ukrainian troops. The ongoing advances are tactically significant, but Ukrainian forces must penetrate several additional layers of significant engineered defenses. 
This must be done while preserving combat power, so that when the third echelon is breached, there is enough combat potential to exploit the gap. Ukrainian forces are making significant progress, but it is too soon to talk about a breakthrough. In occupied Zaporizhia, Tokmak was hit by rockets fired by HIMARS, with Russian air defense missile debris landing in numerous areas of the city. Outside Tokmak, a single rocket fired by HIMARS destroyed a Russian observation post. Now let's talk about the Black Sea, including the countries of Romania and Bulgaria, occupied Crimea and the Mykolaiv and Odessa regions. In occupied Crimea, Russian forces are increasing security at the Kerch or Crimean Bridge, which is still undergoing repairs from the July 17 attack. The Rosgvardia 39th Naval Detachment operates nine Coast Guard patrol boats near the bridge, searching for uncrewed surface drones. At the port entrance to Sevastopol, Russia has also added defenses, including anti-submarine nets, sinking barges to create obstacles, increasing patrols, restricting ship traffic and using trained dolphins. Brigadier General Alexander Tarnavsky, commander of the Operational Strategic Group of Troops in the Tavria region, told the United States news agency CNN that the missile strike on the Black Sea Fleet headquarters was a subordinate attack. Quote, the success of offensive operations lies not only in destroying the enemy in front of you, but also in destroying places where equipment and personnel are concentrated, and especially in destroying command posts." Tarnavsky added that destroying high-level command and control leads to chaos on the battlefield. Another assessment. The Russian Ministry of Defense has demonstrated an increasing capacity to adapt to battlefield conditions compared to a year ago. However, it remains hobbled by a top-down command structure and the lack of a non-commissioned officer corps. Russian officers are not empowered to problem-solve and are expected to follow their orders as given. When there is a disconnect or change in command, field commanders focused on preserving their careers become reluctant to carry out their existing orders. This remains one of the biggest deficiencies of the Russian Federation Armed Forces and will remain unaddressed with the current command structure. In Odessa, Shahid-136 kamikaze drones, Kalibr and Onyx cruise missiles attacked the city of Odessa. I'm here with Maria Galina, a writer, a critic, and a lot of things in Odessa. And we will have a chance to speak to Maria again. But today, I would like to ask Maria about the last night in Odessa. Hello, Zarina. Nice to hear you. I think that it was very loud. I think it was the loudest night during the all summer and uh, autumn. We have two onyxes and uh, maybe near 20 calibers. We have some kind of attacks on Odessa port. You know, when you are living near the sea, it is very, very loud for the sea is some kind of big resonator. And uh, it was also Shahid's drones. Our defense tries to kill them with machine guns. It was very, very loud. Odessa Oblast Administrative and Military Governor Ova Oleg Kiper said port infrastructure was hit. The Hotel Odessa and adjacent cruise ship terminal were heavily damaged. 
while Russian propagandists excitedly declared the hotel was full of NATO soldiers and foreign mercenaries, the property was abandoned in 2011 and was in a state of disrepair. We are very grateful to our air forces and to our defense. And uh, they killed our hotel, which is in the port, the building that all Odessa people hate. They destroyed the building that everybody wanted destroyed anyways. That's right. For free, they demolished our hotel, which was going to be destroyed anyways. <laughs> this is such a typical Odessa and such a great example of Odessa's sense of humor. The owner of the hotel, Andrei Stavnitsa, wrote, This was my hotel, Kempinski, Odessa. I dreamed of building a beautiful, modern promenade in Odessa with a concert hall, with a pier for cruise ships, with a skating rink for winter, bicycle paths, restaurants and shops. My city would finally have a waterfront, a place where you would like to visit on the weekend with your children, where tourists would like to visit. I didn't like it just as all Odessa residents didn't like it. So I dreamed of finally reconstructing it. I've dreamed about it for a long time, invested millions of dollars, bought a share from private investors, and despite the war, closed the deal with the state. We will rebuild it all. Thank God there were no casualties. And uh, my last question, I know you are very busy this morning. You have a cat and a dog, and they are very afraid of explosions. Is that right? Yes, a lot of people in the center, they just uh, take uh, the, their animals to bomb shelters. And uh, I know my um, friend in fa Facebook, and uh, she said that there were almost all people who took their animals to bomb shelter. Thank you so much, Maria, and take care Bye. and stay safe. A warehouse was also hit, and private homes and grain storage were damaged. One woman was injured by flying debris. It was another rough day in Free Kherson, with Russian forces continuing attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure. The city of Kherson was hit by two Fab 500 SE UMPK glide bombs, wounding one. Shelling in a different part of the city wounded six people, including pensioners, with four in hospital. Lvov was also bombed by the Russian VKS, killing a 67-year-old man. Kherson Oblastova Oleksandr Prokudin said Russia carried out 87 fire missions using 497 artillery rounds, mortars, grad rockets, fired by multiple launch rocket systems MLRS, indirect tank fire, drone-delivered IEDs and bombs. There was a lot of activity on the Russian front. In the city of Kursk, geolocated videos showed the Federal Security Service FSB of Russia being hit by a smaller kamikaze drone, damaging the roof. Flights were halted twice at Moscow's Vnukovo and the Medvedevo airports due to claimed drone attacks. There were no reports of damage or injuries. 
a quick assessment. While the ground stops that last 30 to 90 minutes may appear to be only a nuisance, they significantly impact Russian logistics. Russian airlines of communication, that's a supply line, converge into Moscow's airport. Passenger service, commerce and military flights are equally impacted when flights are halted. Just the threat of a drone attack on Moscow slows Russian military logistics and those 30 to 90 minutes start to add up. In St. Petersburg, power and water were knocked out in the Shushari district and Pulkova airport after residents reported seeing a bright flash. There's a lot more that happened, and you can read about that in our situation report. I want to keep us focused on the larger events. There continue to be incidents on the Belarus and Polish border. Belarusian officials have restarted pushing undocumented migrants to the border, where they harass and throw rocks at Polish border guards. The Ministry of Defense of Poland accused Belarus of trying to, quote, destabilize the situation in Poland and jeopardize the security of the Poles, unquote. Let's talk about important theater-wide events. Russian launched a large missile and drone attack on the night of September 24th-25th, including 23 Shahid-136 kamikaze drones in two waves, 12 caliber cruise missiles and two P-800 Onyx anti-ship missile used for a ground attack. The Ukrainian Air Force intercepted 19 drones and the Navy intercepted four. 11 caliber cruise missiles were also destroyed. United States Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy told reporters he would not strip out $300 million in aid to Ukraine in an upcoming bill, nor strip out aid from a funding package for foreign operations of the State Department. Germany will provide Ukraine with 50 uncrewed surface vessels as part of a previously announced military aid package. The first batch will include 10 vessels, but their capabilities are a mystery. Ukraine and Poland have agreed to create a large military medical hub to exchange experience and techniques, saving people with battle injuries and for mutual assistance. What's going on in Russia? It's time for mobilization, Mobix and Mir. The Aplot militia in Rostov-on-Don, originally formed in Kharkiv in 2014, said that former PMC Wagner mercenaries were joining the group to provide training to Russian reservists. There were several reports that up to 500 former Wagnerites who did not participate in the insurrection had signed contracts with an unnamed PMC. The new company is reportedly aligned with the Kremlin and run by Dmitry Troshev, a former police colonel from Sobr of the main directorate of the Ministry of Internal Affairs, and a man with the call sign Hrustal, who was the head of personnel for Wagner Group. In the Russian town of Gorechi Kluch in Krasnodar Krai, a memorial was erected at the Wagner Group chapel for the mercenaries who died in Ukraine. The black triangular stele contains more than 25,000 names. Due to the growing demographic crisis in Russia and a shortage of men, the Ministry of Internal Affairs is lowering its recruiting standards. 
Russian citizens who can no longer serve in the military due to injuries and those unfit for military service can now join. The age limit for entry-level officers and management was raised from 35 years old to 50 years old. Where did the Russian 810th Naval Infantry Brigade go? According to ISW, the 810th was combat destroyed during the three months it was deployed in Zaporizhia. In August, we shared pictures of a Russian Franken weapon, an MTLB armored personal carrier with the Navy A-22 Agon flamethrower. The A-22 is meant to be mounted on smaller patrol boats and landing craft, not makeshift MLRS. We know they are operating on the front lines because the first one was destroyed. A lot of assessments today. The growing number of improvised solutions using naval armaments indicates that Russia faces shortages. What is unclear is if those shortages are ammunition, equipment or both. While Russia seems to have an infinite supply of heavy weapons, 45-50% to 50 of its military hardware has been destroyed, damaged, abandoned or captured in the last 19 months. Mocking these solutions is underestimating the capabilities of Russia. There's an old saying, it's not stupid if it works. Ukrainian civilians and soldiers on the receiving end of 140mm thermobaric rockets don't care if a catapult was used to launch them. However, Russia wouldn't be fielding improvised weapon system if they weren't facing a shortage. Former FSB colonel, convicted war criminal, failed mobic and prisoner of Lefortova prison, Igor Strelkov-Girkin, was severely beaten by another inmate in the infamous facility. Finally, Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan criticized the CSTO, calling the Russian-led alliance ineffective, and believes that Armenia needs to modify and supplement internal and external security. Our war crimes and human rights section sometimes discusses graphic details of human rights abuses and crimes against humanity. Today's report does not include any graphic content. Military medic Orest Gritsuk, a prisoner of war for nine months, said that the International Committee of the Red Cross in Moscow took part in the abuse of Ukrainian POWs. Quote, they came there, their Russian representatives. We walked there and sang songs. They filmed all this, laughed, slapped us, and called us all kinds of bad words. The International Human Rights Group Global Rights Compliance, working with the Ukrainian Prosecutor's Office, is preparing a report documenting Russian war crimes, human rights abuses, and acts of genocide. The report will focus on the siege of Mariupol, using hunger and food scarcity as a weapon in the occupied territories, and the limiting of Ukrainian food exports and its global impact. Once completed, it will be given to the International Criminal Court. The Russian VKS dropped UMPK glide bombs adjacent to the hospital in Bereslav, Kherson, blowing out windows and doors and damaging the ambulance garages. Medical equipment was destroyed in the attack. A day after being selected as the illegitimate leader of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, collaborator Denis Pushilin instituted curfews, border closures and other restrictions. 
Beyond the weekday curfew, military censorship has been ordered, with all mail, internet communications and telephone conversations to be monitored and reviewed. Ushilin's decree also prohibits meetings, rallies, demonstrations, marches, picketing and worker strikes. Further, blocking posts, filtration camps and control posts will be added to the administrative borders of neighboring regions. At the Novozovsk border crossing, the line was 20 kilometers long to enter occupied Donetsk. Human rights experts worry that the declarations are a test that will eventually lead to the announcement of total martial law in all the occupied territories. the last 24 hours, a lot happened geopolitically that directly or indirectly impacted Russia or Ukraine. In Mali, the Tuareg have declared war on the pro-Russian junta, PMC Wagner, and other aligned forces. Separatists from the Azavad movement announced total mobilization, and the Tuareg claimed to have shot down eight PMC Wagner and Malian aircraft. On Saturday, an L-76 transport plane owned by Rubista of Belarus was destroyed. Officials reported 140 people were killed, including Malian soldiers and mercenaries with PMC Wagner. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz threatened to restore border controls with Poland, accusing its neighbor of fraudulently issuing tens of thousands of visas to migrants from Africa and Asia. Polish officials said they were conducting an investigation but only found 300 cases. On Saturday in Ireland, President Zelensky held an unscheduled meeting with the chairman of the Sovereign Council of Sudan, Abdel Fattah al-Burgan. Zelensky said they discussed common security challenges caused by Russia, grain shipments and strengthening African relations. Why was this meeting significant? Fighting erupted in Sudan over the summer between two rival factions, with the Rapid Support Forces aligned with Moscow and backed by PMC Wagner, or what's left of the mercenary organization. Russia also wants to build a naval base in Sudan on the Red Sea. The publicized meeting between the two leaders comes days after US news agency CNN reported that the Hur is operating in Sudan and targeting Wagnerites who committed atrocities in Ukraine. Prime Minister of Armenia Nikol Pashinyan accused Russia of engaging in hybrid warfare against Armenia in the information field and in this situation our communication with society should be more active. It is very important that we maintain trust in official information. On the same day, Azerbaijan launched military action in Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh, our analyst team recorded a significant increase in disinformation and Kremlin-backed narratives against Pashinyan. We wrote about it on Google News, and there is a link to the story in the podcast description. And that's the most important events that happened yesterday. Your support of my home, Ukraine, helps us make history and protect the future for all. Now, let me turn the podcast over to our executive producer and my co-host, Zarina Zabriskie. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. 
You can find us on patreon.com at News. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm here with Dennis Suhanov. Yes. And Dennis is a resident of Kherson, stayed here throughout the invasion, occupation, liberation, and still staying here, doing a lot of things for his city. How was it during the very first days of occupation? It was uh, very curious, really, because uh, I never felt like this. Like, uh, you have so much energy, really. You don't know what to do, but you want to do something. Was it adrenaline? Yeah. It so was for you adrenaline. personally, did you expect the invasion or was it a shock? Well, I think... Uh, like morally, I were I was prepared, but really I, I expected that uh, they will not do this uh, mistake, because uh, for the moment for the 2022 it was really a mistake to attack Ukraine in this moment. Maybe our Western um, like partners I don't know even how to call it because from the first days America or uh, Britain they think that. We cannot protect ourselves. We will fault. Yeah, but uh, something goes wrong. Not how they think. So right. yeah, I really uh, felt some. I don't know even how to tell it. Like it's. I was excited about all of this. <laughs> yeah, scared. Because uh, firstly, I uh, think about my uh, children and what to do. Like how to protect them and. Do we need to escape from Kherson or not? And it was really difficult decision for the first three days. From the first day, we create headquarters of help. I don't know how to call it. Like, so you started by creating this group of people, and uh, you told me that you were delivering snacks uh, <laughs> for the army. A what? lot of some stuff: snacks, chocolate, uh, medicine, uh, some. Bandage. So right now we just heard the sound of... I heard some sound of uh, a bomb, the flight, uh, and then explosion. Then explosion. It's the second explosion during this interview, so we will just continue. <laughs> For the first few days, you were just acting basically on a whim, collecting whatever was needed that you could think of. And then you had some time to organize a bit. Uh, what did you do then? Protest opening started on the 5th of the March. It was after more than one week after the invasion started. Start protests on the main square, like just several people, and they asked to people go on the streets next day. It was Sunday. So it started like some tradition and uh, tradition but not more than three times <laughs> because then start, they Russians start shooting uh, to the people uh, with uh, tear gas of course uh, people afraid to go more than uh, 
three weeks. So three Sundays, it were protests. On the first protest, uh, when I filmed when the, uh, some guy uh, with the flag, the armored vehicle. It was armored vehicle. Armored vehicle, yeah. It was a lot of people. It was, I think, 5,000 people at least. And now we are still doing the interview. We had an interruption because we had an explosion. And currently, another sound that you hear in the background is the air raid siren. You also hear a click-click. And that is a lady right behind us doing gardening right through two explosions and air raid sirens, which is a very common sight everywhere in Ukraine. And I wish you could see her. Here she is with her garden shears, clicking away, weeding away. Dennis, what do you think about that? I think it is resistance. Because uh, to do normal life, it is civilian resistance. To do your regular life, you never lose your You're mind. not going to go crazy. Yeah, not going to go crazy. Well, yeah. Then since our interview is going, you know, it's guided by external circumstances, I'm going to step away from my questions yeah. and ask you another one. What do you think, as far as the normal life goes, about young people dancing on the weekends? Is it resistance or should they not do it? I have nothing against it. Like I can even only support it. Even if I could, if I have some possibilities to support it, I can support it because I think it is resistance. Like, uh, no, you know, like it is, it is about mental health. It is about your normal life. If you are used to, to do it like this, why not? If you have another possibility to uh, keep your mental health in normal state, do it. I think that helps against demoralization. As an expert on the combat propaganda, that's number one goal is demoralization of the army and population of the adversary. By gardening, dancing, and just sitting here, chilling out like Dennis does in a very cool, funny t-shirt, which has a beaver in a helmet, right? A biological labs of Ukraine, which is a joke about Russian propaganda again, yeah. spreading the rumors about Ukrainians using geese, mosquitoes, and yeah. beavers. It's all the way of resisting the enemy. Because what we see here, what do you think, Dennis? I believe it's terrorism. Mostly you can see that they shell in uh, some personal houses. Like when the shelling goes to the areas where no militaries, and it's every day. Every day someone dies. Thank you very much, Dennis. Thank you for being here. And we hope to get the chance to speak to you again. Uh, thank you for doing this because you are sharing with uh, worldwide all information that you can find in Ukraine. As I'm walking down the street in a, in a yard in Hirsod, I see windows broken, windows with the scotch tape, crosses like patterns to hold them. Just a couple of minutes ago, there was a hit. And I also see a beautiful little garden on the street that is called Moskovska, street called after Moscow on the right. There's a graffiti with the Black Sea, a sailing ship, a seagull, and flowers. 
and butterflies. Also boarded windows everywhere. In There's almost no one in the street. Just one gentleman right behind me. Hi, Zareen. It's great to see you. Um, my name is Neil Bailey, and uh, I'm currently in the UK. I normally reside in the USA, and I'm a motorcycle journalist. And uh, I spent recently five weeks riding around Ukraine on my motorcycle, meeting people like yourself, photo-documenting stories and doing interviews, and just trying to learn as much as possible about the situation in Ukraine. That sounds so intriguing. I know a lot of our listeners might not have heard about motorcycle journalists. Could you elaborate on it just a little bit, please? Yeah, photojournalist, TV guy, video guy in the motorcycle space. So a lot of my mainstream would be to go and test a new model, a new product. But it can touch anything. It can be somebody who makes or designs motorcycles, somebody who sells a motorcycle, someone who races a motorcycle to somebody who sells them. So anything within the motorcycle space. And I spun off into humanitarian work about 15 years ago with my foundation. And I've been raising money. I use motorcycles as my tool. Other people use other things. And that's what led me to come to Ukraine in 2022 was to do some humanitarian work. I wanted to raise money for children that had been injured and people that were in trouble. And my tool of choice is the motorcycle. And that's where my audience lies. So I'm able to speak to my readers in the motorcycle space if I'm on a motorcycle. So that's been helpful. And I know you traveled extensively while in Ukraine. Could you tell us a bit about your trip this time? Where did you get to go? I came initially to Lviv because I have friends there from last year and I wanted to visit and spend time at the Superhumans Center in Lviv. I had met um, other soldiers with amputations last year and I could say you really must take a visit there. It's incredible what they're doing and how they're doing it and just the attitude of the staff and the doctors and the whole center and the patients. They're superhumans. And then I left there and went to Kiev and spent an interesting week really just with a Ukrainian couple who live a little bit outside of Kiev. Last year, we spent quite a lot of time in the city. And it was just interesting. And it allowed me to formulate my ideas to understand every Ukrainian person has a story that goes back to February 24th, 2022. And I think me showing up on a motorcycle and spending time with people allowed people to put that story together from that day to now, where maybe they wouldn't tell that story to each other because they both lived it together. And it really helped me deeply understand that every single person in Ukraine is suffering, has suffered and continues to suffer every day at some level, even though as a nation, they don't show it. I mean, Ukrainian people are very strong. They go about their business. They don't give much away. But when you sit for a time, you realize they've all suffered the same story. The war started. They were somewhere. It affected them. And they've had to live in a certain way to hear. And so that was great. I left Kiev, came down to Odessa. Obviously, I met with you met with my friend Adam Yuzhny, who does big Enduro rallies and raises a lot of money for the armed forces with motorcycles and cars. When I left you, I went to Dnipro City, 
then I went out to Kharkiv, back to Kiev, back to Lviv, and then I took the BMW motorcycle back to Munich, where they had originally loaned it to me. Incredible. I believe that really gave you a very extensive overview of the country. Of course, it's a very big country, which a lot of people don't really realize. There are still many areas that you or I have not visited. But of all the places have you seen, what did strike you the, the most? I think it's the indomitable spirit of the Ukrainian people. I was around people literally within hours of cruise missile strikes where things were still on fire and to being at restaurants and cafeterias with people having a nice dinner in the, in the quieter places but always there's just a strength and a belief in the country a belief in the victory and you can't help but take that away the just you know, a lot of admiration for people and i think being alone on this trip and really getting a time to dig in and spend some time with people like yourself and Victoria, you realize how much Ukrainian people are doing to volunteer, to help, to assist. There's a lifetime of incredible stories of bravery, heroism, and and giving that exist that I feel sometimes we're not seeing here in the West. And right now, with Zelensky being in New York, uh, visiting the United States, the Russian Federation military seeing failure at the front, the information warfare is accelerating, and there are a bunch of narratives that are being pushed forward. One of the most forceful ones at the moment is the peace negotiations, as people who have been talking with the Ukrainians, you have visited with many Ukrainian families and many Ukrainian cities. What is your impression of Ukrainian people' desire and resolve? Only under Zelensky's terms of Russia out, Ukraine goes back the way it is, and then they will talk peace. And I thought Zelensky was incredibly succinct, you know, when he said to Trump, Put your peace plan on the table. It doesn't involve us giving up our lands. And I think everybody's very, very committed to the victory. They're not going to accept uh, some sort of bad deal for Ukraine at all. I don't feel, not anybody I met. Exactly. This is my impression as well. This Wherever I go, I'm currently in Kherson. I was in Odessa. I was in Kiev. I was in Kramatorsk, in Donbass, Lviv. Anywhere you go, I have not met anybody who would be willing to compromise or negotiate with Russia. How do Ukrainians deal with it, living with fear on a daily basis? I think, back to what I said earlier, time that I had this time to sit with people, obviously tremendous fear at the beginning of the war um, because nobody knew what was going on. And I think that my whole experience in July of 2022 was very much shaped by that uncertainty. I do feel that this year there is a level of calm potentially inside me because I had more experience of what to expect. But the people, yes, they have fear, but they're less fearful because they know that they're still here, they're still moving forward. And I think privately they will share their fears, but they won't publicly share them. They're, they're showing this really strong face to their fellow countrymen, the country and the world. And that's what's so admirable about Ukrainian people. But I don't think they're without fear. I think they realize what would happen if Russia wins this war. The rape, the torture, genocide, I mean, subjugation of peoples, their language. I mean, this is not, this does not end well for Ukraine if they don't win. And that's the sad part is so many people in the world do not understand 
the vicious nature of what Russia has decided to do. They've deliberately curated this war. They didn't line all their munitions and weapons and soldiers up and then accidentally start targeting civilians and schools and hospitals and power systems. This is a very, very cruel and deliberate attempt to destroy a population. And I don't think Ukraine would settle for anything other than the total victory here. I see this fearlessness everywhere, and I think it's contagious. Whatever the healthy amount of concern Ukrainians have, this desire to be free and stay free and stay free as a country prevails. We'll say one more thing. I mean, it's such a beautiful country. People are so polite. What other countries do you drive down the road on your motorcycle? And the semi-truck full of goods and supplies going to maybe going to the front line or feeding people sees you in his mirror pulls over hits his turn signal to let you know it's safe to pass you pass him you raise your hand he flashes his lights and i was traveling with a guy who said this isn't a hazard button it's a thank you button what an amazing in all of the stuff that's going on there's still all this civility and politeness and communication just a brilliant experience being with you guys so thank you very much for what all of you did for me while I was there. It was a great honor to be with you. Well, thank you. On behalf of the American journalists in Ukraine, thank you for, for the compliment. I mean, I can say the same. Uh, wherever we are somewhere in the field needing help, Ukrainians are always, always there to extend help, even under shelling, even when they don't have food or water, they'll be there to help. This is a beautiful, beautiful experience. Thank you so much for sharing your, well, still very fresh memories of your trip. And we'll talk to you soon, Neil. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.